Well, tonight we bring a, a close to our teaching through uh, the first paragraph of chapter 2. And really the, the first paragraph has been looking at the attributes of God. Romans eleven thirty three to 36. Uh, read that on the screen uh, behind me with me. Oh, the depths and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. If you think about where we've, we've come, we, again, we laid the foundation of Scripture is our source that we go to. Scripture reveals God as he has given his own revelation and we see that he alone is God. He exists in and of himself. He doesn't change. He's incomprehensible. He is a spirit. He is infinite in every way and sovereignly acting and directing every every creature. Last week we saw that he is absolutely loving and absolutely merciful. Tonight, as we look at these truths, I want to ask two questions. Two, some people may say, well, those are big questions. One, does God send people to hell if they have never heard of Christ? It's a big question atheists throw out. Does God send people to hell if they have never heard about Christ? And secondly... Does God hate sinners? Or as we often hear, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Tonight we will see, I believe, what the scriptures teach us on those. As we've been walking through paragraph one, look at the whole paragraph with me. Again, we're we're just grabbing one section, so it's good to keep seeing that context The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. He excuse me, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. Most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And here's our section tonight. And with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. The writer of Hebrews has written through the inspiration of the Spirit. And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. 
Every single one of us who, who walks the face of this earth or who has walked or will walk, we have a life. It is a life that has been given a number by God himself. And when we die, we face judgment. It's been said that everybody will meet God, either as Lord or as Savior. As we think about the, this paragraph, we think of what does the word just mean? It says that he is with all most just and terrible in his judgments. And I would maybe give this as an analogy. Just and righteous are often kind of used interchangeable. And righteous means to always do what is right. And the words that we see righteous and justice uh, come from have a root in kind of holiness. And it literally means to be straight. That his, his judgment is straight. That he always does what is right in accordance to who he is. We think about how he always does what is right. In accordance to last week, he always does what is right in his mercy. But also this week we see he always does what is right in his justice. Psalm 119 verse 37 says, Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Nehemiah 9.33, However, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully but we have done wickedly. Nehemiah confesses that God is the one who is just, even in his judgment. As we think of this, it's difficult for us because in our court of law in America, it is based upon the evidence that is presented that the judge or a jury makes their decision. And sadly, sometimes they can get it wrong. But does God ever get his judgments wrong? No, and it's always straight because why? What is, what's another attribute that comes to play in this? Omniscient. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's not left with only part of the story or, or what one person has presented. He knows all things. Kids who have been kind of working through the catechism. Does God know all things? Joshua, can you finish that? Yeah, nothing can be hidden from him. And so that's how his judgments and his justice can be right because they're always right. He always knows the facts and he works all things according to his holy will. His judgment is always straight. In his justice and his mercy, it is always right. But we also see in this sentence that, that his judgments are not just just, but they're terrible. Not terrible in quality, but terrible in severity. This word terrible comes probably from Hebrews 10.31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jonathan Edwards spoke a, a famous sermon upon that title. And the idea there in Hebrews 10 is that fearful, it means a dread, it means a terror. And, it, and it's often equated with, we talk about, his wrath. 
Nahum chapter 1 verse 2 says, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord is avenges and is furious. And the Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. This is sometimes a, an attribute of God that just can make us feel a little uncomfortable. First of all, we're sinners. But also we, we want the, the God of our own making, our God of our own liking that we feel more comfortable with. <clears throat> but even in the midst of the, the Ten Commandments, the Lord is speaking and saying, You shall not bow to, down to them nor serve them, the, the graven images. He says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And notice how he enacts his judgment. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. We see that his wrath has lasting. In Revelation 6, I saw this uh, earlier today as I was studying this. Revelation 6, often we think of the lamb in Revelation as this beautiful spotless lamb. But look at verse 16. The, the, the judgment of God is coming and they're trying to hide behind the rocks. And it says, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. I'm not a shepherd, but I don't see lambs as a wrathful being. But when we understand what that lamb is in Revelation, that it is Christ, that he is king of kings and lord of lords, we see that his wrath, for verse 17 says, For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? <clears throat> the severity of his judgment is great. And often people will try to say, well, it's not really that severe. Or it's just figurative. Hell is a figurative place. But notice the scope of his judgment. That he hates all sin. He hates all sin and will by no means clear the guilty. Anything that is not in accordance with his character is sin. There is nothing that is sin that God can just turn his eye away from because if he turned his eye to just be blind to sin, then he is not unchangeable. For his character would be changing. He would not be holy. He would not be always doing what is right. He is consistent. Now again, last week we saw his long-sufferingness, that, that loyal, the chesed, the, the loving kindness that God withholds judgment. But it's not a permanent withholding. For we see even earlier that it's stored up, that it will come, but he is gracious to withhold it. So kind of that question that I asked at the beginning does God hate sinners or does he just hate sin? I've probably said that phrase before. God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. Yet look at Psalm 5. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord not just hates, he abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. It's not speaking of their actions. It's talking about them as a person. Because of their actions, God hates them. That his wrath is against them. 
In Psalm verse, chapter 3, verse 7, it speaks that God has broken the teeth of the ungodly. Now, there's a bit of a figurative speech there. But God does hate the sin. And because that sin has affected the person, his wrath is poured out not just on the sin of the person, but upon the person as a whole. Tomorrow when I send out my email, I'm going to share a, a, a video uh, of David uh, Platt actually hitting on this topic and uh, spends about ten nine minutes, I think, uh, looking at this in, a, in an amazing way that I don't have time to, to hit on uh, because it goes into another topic of the, uh, of the confession. But yes, God hates sinners and the sin. But what about those who have never heard of Christ? Is God just to cast them into hell forever who have never heard the gospel? Greg Glory with Harvest Crusades was asked this question and I watched the video of him answering it and he kind of answered it but I think was kind of ashamed to answer it plainly. Because, listen to my words carefully, technically, those who are innocent do not go to hell. The problem is none are innocent. Do you hear me? God would be unjust if he sent an innocent person to hell. But the thing is, there is no innocent person because we see in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and against the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of what? Of the world. His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, is this easy for us to just kind of brush over? No. Our hearts should ache over that. That all people through general revelation, through creation, are left condemned. And the only hope is through the the hope of the gospel being presented. For faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How How will they hear? How will they hear? Unless they have what? A preacher. God has chosen the the foolishness of man to be proclaimed out of our mouths. But it's not our message, it is his message. And from the smallest of child to the oldest of child throughout all the world, the oldest of human being throughout all the world, we all stand guilty. That every single one of us is guilty. And so God will not clear the guilty. We see this phrase come from, we were looking at Exodus 34, 6 and 7 last week. That is, he's long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgression and sin. And notice, by no means clearing the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God hates all who are guilty and all are guilty. Because Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Romans 6.23, the wages of that sinner, the consequence of that sinner, what? Death. It's not a physical death. It's that picture of the judgment of God creating the spiritual death. As Romans 3 earlier says, as it is written, verse 10 to 12, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Do you realize when we read these words that we say, you know what, God does not by no means clear the guilty. That that means we stand guilty. That, that there's not just some little pass that, that we get. That God says, you know what, you've been good enough. Because if he said you're good enough, it actually goes against his holiness and his righteous character. And then God would be contradicting himself and no longer God. But in the infinite plan and in the justice of God, God brought a way of salvation. His wrath must be appeased. And because he is love... He found, he didn't find, he didn't have to go search and figure out a way. But there was only one way. Because all sin must be paid for. And his answer was that no human being could take that punishment. That he himself would have to. That's how we see in Romans 3. Again, in the context of Romans 3.23... Um, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we see the answer in just two verses later, and starting in verse 25. Whom God set forth, speaking of Christ, is the propitiation by his blood, through faith to demonstrate his, what? To demonstrate his righteousness. So the picture of Christ upon the cross is not what some people call the greatest um, uh, parental abuse in the world. It was the most righteous act in the world because it was God preparing this. Because in his forbearance, that's withholding, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because God is just, he can't ignore our sin. But he makes a way that, so that he still can be just. But in doing so, he makes us right with him. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There is no way that we can be cleared By God just turning a blind eye. There's no way that we can be cleared of our sin because God is a just God. His wrath is terrible and we all stand underneath it. But Christ came into the world to take sin upon himself. To take the curse. And those who by faith receive his gift we receive his righteousness when he receives our wrath 
There is a blood that is spilt for every sin because God is a righteous God. It's either a picture of our own, our own blood being spilt out for all eternity or Christ's blood. And in the midst of looking at the severity and the, the, judge, the, just, the just judgment of God, there's the beautiful picture of God's great mercy. We'll see this more as we, we move along through the confession. But that's how God is able to be loving and merciful and just and holy all at the same time. But when we try to take any of that out, God is not all of that. And therefore, he is not the God of the scriptures. We have to keep coming back to that beautiful picture of who he is. I've been challenged recently we often talk about God is the one who saves and God pours out his mercy. And God is a, a great, gracious God. But has that truth really sunk into our lives? Or is it just some intellectual assent that I believe that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone? Or, or is it something that has truly transformed my heart that changes the way I treat other people? Or am I like the unforgiving servant who has been forgiven a lot, yet I won't forgive others? You see, the, the justice and the forgiveness of God flesh itself out in a way that we should see it in our own lives. How do you see it in your life? Do you see it in the way that you love other people? If we truly understand the plight that we are in in our sin, in our hopelessness to save ourselves, and the absolute sovereign grace that's been shown to us, it should transform our hearts to cause us to live so differently. That we would be a people of great love. Not ignoring sin, not, not encouraging people to walk in holiness, not, not ignoring the, the fact that we need to call people to holiness. But how do we do it? Are we doing it in a way of love? Are we doing it in a way of encouraging one another? But also, are we doing it, in a sense, also in the fear of God? Do we see the dread of our sin as God has shown us throughout the scriptures? It's easy to just kind of skip over this because it's an uncomfortable place to sit. But sometimes we need to sit and we need to recall our lostness, that we can't save ourselves and that God is just. And we are all appointed to live once and to die and then comes the judgment. I pray that through faith we would be a part of God's family to find forgiveness in Christ and not the judgment of Christ upon ourselves. In response, as we turn to the Lord in prayer, I think this should also cause us to consider our own sin in, in the areas of confession. Think of the Lord's Prayer. Confession is a big part of that. Forgive us our debts. We can sometimes skip over that and maybe unknowingly teaching ourselves that 
hey, I don't really have anything I need to confess. And maybe tonight as we're spending time in prayer, maybe there's a time that you need to spend in personal private time confessing to the Lord. Recognizing his wrath upon your sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, just this reminder, Lord, of, of your righteous wrath, Lord, that in your mercy you do all things rightly, but also in your justice and your wrath you do all things rightly. Lord, you are the one who has provided a, an answer to our sin problem. And Lord, it, it is not in and of ourselves that we find hope, but it is in Christ alone. Lord, I pray that that awe and fear and wonder of you would continue to come upon us. That we would stand amazed in the, the love that you have shown in Christ. Lord, change our hearts. Give us hearts of 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 repentance, give us hearts of uh, humility as we walk before you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.